Folks who want to be able to demonstrate interest in a particular substantive area of law, which is not within the mandated 1L curriculum. So if they are really interested in corporate work or in mergers and acquisitions or in intellectual property, they've not yet had time to both explore that themselves or to prove that they are going to be effective within that particular context. There is room for discussion and conversation about whether that movement backward in time, deep into the first year of law school is one that actually permits either the talent or employers to discern an appropriate match. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We are the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an end-to-end technology-enabled legal talent management solution. And we've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions, In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. And occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be many aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. Thank you for joining us today. This month, we are joined by our guest Fiona Hornblower of the NALP Foundation for a discussion on the current status of the legal pipeline and job market. March is also Women's History Month, so we are extremely happy to have uh, Fiona here, a woman at the forefront of legal industry research. Today's discussion will cover recent findings from the NALP Foundation regarding young attorney employment satisfaction, and attrition trends, what these trends tell us about the current legal pipeline, and the recommendations that she might have to address the flaws in the way the legal pipeline currently functions. Fiona is the president and CEO of the NALP Foundation, and prior to joining the foundation, Fiona was the assistant dean for career development and public service at Boston University School of Law and is the National Director of Legal Recruiting for Bingham McCutcheon. She practiced as a litigator at Bingham before leading the firm's recruiting and has also worked as an independent consultant to law firms and as a principal in a boutique practice. She's held numerous leadership positions in both national and local legal and recruiting organizations, including NALP and the ABA. She regularly publishes and speaks on a wide variety of issues in the legal profession, and she's dedicated to improving the quality and delivery of legal services through research, education, and the expansion of diversity within the legal profession. Fiona received her BA from Harvard University and her JD from Boston College Law School. Fiona? Thank you very much for joining us today. We're looking forward to having an engaging discussion on issues that affect law firms and law students every day. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here with you both and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I, I had put all that together. It's like you, you've never left Boston. You have a, a nice little <laughs> uh, enclave going there. 
my, my, my checkered past. Yeah. So there, there was one little blip outside of Boston. Well, actually there were two. Um, after university, after college, I moved abroad and I was uh, in London for a year and a half. And then I clerked for a year on the first circuit after um, law school. And my judges chambers were actually up in Portland, Maine, although we came down to Boston for oral argument. So two little spikes, but mostly within 128. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, that that's great. As we heard from John in the intro, you lead the Nelp Foundation. And for context for people that don't know, the Nelp Foundation has recently released some interesting data regarding the employment satisfaction and attrition rates of young attorneys. Your recent law school alumni employment and satisfaction study examined the employment outcomes and satisfaction of attorneys three years out of law school and identified some startling trends. First, you found that over two-thirds of law school alumni have held two or more sequential positions since graduation. Quite a bit of job hopping for early in one's career. You also found in the report a recent decline in satisfaction levels, with only 42% of the class of 2018 reporting that they were extremely satisfied with their current job. Another recent now Foundation study on associate Attrition expands on these findings. In 2001, firms reported a substantial increase in associate departures as compared to recent years, with an overall average attrition rate of 26%, compared to 16% in 2020. This 2021 attrition rate is the highest attrition rate since you began collecting the data way back in 2006. You also found the attrition rate in 2021 was notably higher for associates of color at 34%. And overall, firms designated 67% of all associate departures as unwanted in 2021, notably up from 57% in 2020. So with these numbers, let's dive in. It sounds like we've got uh, some unhappiness and some turnover, and we've got the perfect person to help us unpack and try to understand. Fiona, the Nell Foundation's research, as I as I just stated, found that over two-thirds of the associates from the class of 2018 have held at least two positions. Given the high levels of effort and investment that go into recruiting uh, and training and that sort of thing, why aren't recent grads finding it more of a sticky fit? This is something, by the way, and I know we'll get into this, John and I talk all the time about here at our, our, our business at, uh, at Legal Innovators. And I think this is the magic elixir, right? Like the firms, most firms seem to be chasing. And that is, how do we get our arms around the retention uh, challenge? Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the most intriguing statistics to come out of our alumni study for me, particularly someone who led an AMLA 25 firm's recruiting efforts and was also then on the school side for many years trying to help counsel students about what their optimal uh, career trajectory would be, as well as what that first position after law school would be. So one quick clarification, the figures that you cited, Brian, are for all of the alumni in the study. So we see that two-thirds mobility rate, we call it the mobility rate, across all different types of employment. So not just law firms, but across government, public interest, you know, the whole sort of spectrum of places that these graduates go to. And I think the particularly intriguing thing is not just that it was very high for this class, but that this level of mobility has been very consistent across all the tracking that we've done. So this is not just for a specific moment in time, 
but we have seen this over the you know decade or more that we have been doing this study that there is this very high level of mobility consistently for folks at these very early stages of their careers. You know, it's interesting, Fiona, because um, when I started back in the dark ages, if you went to a big law firm, the assumption was you stayed until they told you you couldn't stay. That didn't always work. There were a certain number of people who self-selected out, but there was always an understand. It was always an understanding that a small percentage of the class would get to partner, but that would be more at the firm's choice. Um, over the course of my practice, that has completely flipped around where law firms are recruiting people that they want to keep, um, but don't. Um, and and, and uh, I'm interested in two things. Why in 2021 do you think there was such a, a spike to 26%? That's incredibly expensive for a law firm when you lose a quarter of the people that you brought in um, within you know a very short period of time. And then the second thing is, do we think the model of ha of essentially recruiting straight out of law school to get talent is is going to ultimately become something of the past. So we'll start with your first one. Um, yes, there was absolutely an empiric spike in the attrition levels as you know, it went up to twenty six um, from sixteen percent the prior year. And I think you know what we all saw during twenty twenty one was that there was this huge war for talent going on. So we saw these very high attrition levels, but we also saw comparably unusually high levels of hiring. And really, what that tells me is it's a swirl. It's not just attrition and people moving out, but it's this enormous amount of you know, what we call sort of a talent tornado going on with people sort of moving around um, between different employers. So uh, obviously those two things are intertwined, right? If you are a firm and you lose an associate, that you know, associate is probably being hired by another firm. So we're seeing sort of you know, the, the, the yin and the yang um, on that front. You know, as to why, I think we all know that there were enormous pressures on law firm associates and particularly, particularly during the earlier stages of the pandemic, sort of how do we move to remote work, issues about culture and connectivity, parenting for those who had you know, school-aged children when school was still remote, um, and mental health uh, issues, right? We also saw compensation shifting in the market as firms tried to sort of use that as a retention tool to combat some of the attrition that they were starting to see. So we had special bonuses and salary raises. And we did see in our data that there were spikes in the attrition levels, particularly in the first half of the year, where we had the special bonuses and the salary raises come out. And that's, you know, people moving for economic opportunity. We didn't see that as much in the latter part of the year, but it was certainly there um, earlier on. Interestingly, what we did not see in the data were significant levels of reporting that things like COVID itself or DEI issues were driving attrition for um, associates from firms. We'd actually expected to see that in the data a little bit because there was you know, such an enormous amount of um, attention in the legal and general media about people, you know, opting out uh, because of COVID, but the data didn't actually um, bear that out. 
to your point earlier, uh, John, though, about, you know, the shift in the model from, you know, folks beginning at firms and staying there for long periods of time, you know, the received wisdom um, I think when you and I were both practicing or starting practice was, you know, you weren't marketable until you were at a minimum a third to fifth year associate, you know, and then sort of, you know, from there, there were opportunities. What we did see in the data for 2021, which was unusual, was we did see an increase in the number of folks who left a firm within one year of joining it. And that was both on the uh, side of folks who had just joined as entry-level associates, where Historically, you never had people sort of moving within that first year, um, but then particularly with lateral associates, we saw a significant uptick there. So that was the, you know, the unusual bit in the data within the context of the mobility staying at these historically high rates. Now, your second part, um, the question is the sort of really in, intriguing one, the, the model, which is, you know, is, is the model effective? Is the model broken? Are there things that we can and should be doing differently? Um, I think one thing that is worrisome for many of us in the profession is that the recruiting timeline for firms has gotten earlier and earlier. You know, OCI itself moved back chronologically. It used to be called fall recruiting, then it moved into early fall and then late summer. Now there's pre-recruiting, which happens even earlier than that. And, you know, many firms are now engaging in significant um, recruiting efforts well back into the first year of law school. And, um, you know, I think there's a, a question we all want to be asking about, is that an effective way to align talent with the needs of organizations where it's based largely on only one semester's worth of academic performance within a mandated curriculum. So there's not yet been the time for people who come from other disciplines where there may need to transition into the sort of, you know, uh, critical um, approaches uh, taught by uh, the academic pedagogy within law school, or uh, folks who um, want to be able to demonstrate interest in a particular substantive area of law, which is not within the mandated one all curriculum. So if they are really interested in corporate work or in mergers and acquisitions or in intellectual property, they've not yet had time to both explore that themselves intellectually within um, the academic context or to prove that they are going to be effective within that particular um, context. So I do think that there is um, there is room for discussion and conversation about whether that movement backward in time deep into the first year of law school is one that um, actually permits either the talent or employers to discern an appropriate match. Good, uh, good unpacking uh, of, of some of that, uh, some of those trends around, around the numbers. So you brought up in your response to the first part of John's question about uh, or, or made reference to associates of, of color. I want to try to have us dig down a, a little bit now. And uh, when, when, again, to remind people, and, and thanks for the clarification, you know, across the, across the board uh, for the statistics, for associates of color, the attrition rate was even higher. I think we noticed that, it, uh, noted that at 34%, nearly doubling from 2020. And so two questions. Um, one I think we've talked about, maybe one a little bit of a curveball. We'll make try to make you a soothsayer here a little bit. What does this mean for firms in terms of D D E and I initiatives and their investments, right? And given and, and well, maybe, maybe it's not a separate part, but a, a, a nuance, right? 
if we're looking at that question and we're looking a little bit prospectively, I think, depending on who you read, right, most economists are saying slow down, not recession, whatever that means. But we've seen through the news almost daily, some firms are holding steady, some firms have practice areas that are building out, some are doing mergers, and some are cutting folks, right? So maybe if we could take what's happening in the numbers, and then two, how do we look forward and, and, and what could happen if, say, we're not careful as we make these headcount adjustments for the current market conditions? Yeah. So I think, you know, to your point, the fact that the attrition rate for associates of color is measurably higher than that of majority associates is troubling. And again, we have a longer term trend here because that has been the case, not just in the 2021 statistics, but even before that, you know. So last year, when attrition overall was 16%, much lower overall, it was still 18% for um, associates of color. And the year before that, when it was 18% overall, it was 28% for associates of color. So again, we're seeing, you know, two trend lines where one is always higher than the other. I think there are probably a couple of factors at play here. You know, I always like to try to look at the positive as well as the negative. On the positive side, diverse associates are highly sought after, right? So there are going to be um, firms that wish to make a point of recruiting diverse associates from other firms, right? So, and there are opportunities for movement to other firms and in-house positions. So that is good. The flip side of that is that really contemplates, you know, a zero-sum game or closed system where the hunt for diverse talent is only within the group of associates who have already been hired by law firms. And I think there's a very good question about whether we need to be looking at as an open system rather and continuing to identify and nurture strong talent from a variety of sources um, for firms to target to bring into their own organizations. So the second part of your question on the sort of, you know, what's the return on investment for firms? I think that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, a lot of firms have tried to do some important and substantive things around retention for associates in general and around DEI efforts. I think there's a definitional question, which is important for firms on how they define success on those diversity efforts. Is it keeping someone at their own organization or is it keeping someone within the ecosystem in general? And so the ROI analysis is going to differ depending on how an organization is defining the success of its DEI efforts and which is the priority. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's kind of what Sometimes we say it essentially share it's moving around the same number of people amongst the larger number of law firms, but it's not moving the needle right. for a larger group of people. So anyway, um, I want to dive a little deeper into the levels of attrition that you addressed before, because it's it's very interesting. Your research shows that nearly half moved to another firm, 40% moved to a competitor or peer firm, and most of them stayed in the same geographic area. So they're not necessarily moving to a different part of the country or a different part of the world. So two parts to the question. Have you been able to ascertain or have a guess as to why so many lawyers are leaving firms if it's not because of the work environment or geography, in other words, they're going to another firm that's going to be very similar in terms of the expectations and work-life balance. So that's the first part. And then the second part is, well, for those that do go elsewhere and opt out, why are they opting out 
so soon in their careers and choosing a completely different path from big law. Because that's a big number too. 50% of the people don't like big law. Right. So bear in mind also that the data from our attrition study is provided by firms. So it's the reasons that associates are willing to articulate to the firm from which they are departing. So, you know, there may be a gap between them sharing all of the reasons they may or may not be leaving an organization. But, you know, we do actually probe in our research. We ask firms to tell us the reasons that departing associates are actually leaving. And what we see is that there are a couple of reasons that always rise to the top. And those are pursuit of a specific practice area. So someone wants to focus on either a different or an in-depth in a slightly different way in the in their practice. They're trying to move their practice essentially, right? Or they want to make a career change to another type of job altogether. So, you know, those are professional drivers. They're sort of seeing how their career is evolving at that relatively early stage we were discussing earlier. And now they may have more of that data about how they actually want to move forward um, in that. Interestingly enough, when we look at the data, we parse it out between entry-level associates and lateral associates. So folks who joined a firm as an entry or as as a lateral associates. The two cohorts share both of those as two top reasons, but there's also a third top reason cited for lateral talent, and that's unmet work quality standards. So what we hear from the firms is that one of the prime reasons why lateral associates depart is that they have not met expectations for how they are going to be working within that organization. So then, you know, your your second question, John, was sort of if they don't go to another firm, a peer or competitor firm, you know, why are they making the decision to leave? I think there are probably a whole host of factors. Um, you know, it could be opportunities in other sectors, as we were discussing about, you know, diverse associates and others. It could be financial. It could be work-life balance. It could be family obligations, you know. So I think there's a whole host of reasons. We don't have, as a profession, great data on that. So one of the things that we have actually added to our alumni study, where the data is coming directly from the graduates rather than through the firms, is this year we actually just added a question asking them to tell us why they have made this shift. So for the next alumni study, we'll be able to actually have some data that we can parse out and say, okay, we're hearing from the firms, the reasons articulated are ABC, and we're hearing from the graduates themselves, it's B, C, and D, you know, so there, I think there'll be some really interesting data coming out of that. I know Brian has a question, but before we jump to it, I just wanted to make one observation about what you said before, and we can discuss or not now, but you said that what firms were doing in the talent war era of only a year ago was that they were throwing money at their current associates to keep them. And I just wonder, that's a very short-term solution to trying to put a finger in the dike. But I have to ask the question, what if they spent the same amount of money trying to get to the root cause of why the associates want to leave? And you know, and if they spent more money on that and less, they wouldn't necessarily have to throw the money on the back end. But anyway, that's, that's more an observation. Great. We talk a lot about data and you guys produce wonderful researchers we've talked about many times and want to figure out 
how do we as an industry better engage that data, wrestle with it, and then use that to drive solutions? And I guess my jumping off point will be here. There was a recent article, uh, Fiona, from the New York Law Journal that broke down the cost to a big law firm of one associate departure. You and I have talked about this. Um, we know that that number comes to about 950. So we've, of course, we've got to make keep marketing lingo for everything. So we'll, we'll now coin that the million dollar mistake. All right. And so in 21, right, going back to the data, firms designated that 67% of the associate departures were unwanted. So if you have big financial incentive to keep associates where they are, rather than finding new ones, why aren't we? Um, uh, from your vantage point, what tools have we tried to, you know, engage with uh, to answer this retention question and why are they not working? And then obviously the Uber question is, how can we better engage the data? Are there more insights that maybe we're not either gleaning and putting into action or just not gleaning at all? So I think, you know, as you as you mentioned, and as we were just discussing, you know, firms have been trying a lot of different things to try and address slash attack some of these issues. Um, you know, I don't think it's for a lack of trying. And I think firms are very aware of the costs of associate attrition, financial, you know, workflow and the sort of social, you know, attrition contagion worry as well. You know, a certain level of associate attrition is built into the law firm pyramid model, right? By definition, the vast majority of firms who bring in 50 associates as first years aren't anticipating and may not even want all 50 to be there at the time that they're making partnership decisions. So, you know, the question is how far the attrition deviates from that, you know, that pyramid structure and what is seen as, you know, optimal for the organization. It's going to vary a little bit, this, the scale of the slope. At 67%, it's, you know, clearly probably too high. And one of the interesting things for us is, you know, 67 is the aggregate departures that were unwanted. But what we saw in our data is there are also enormous ranges between organizations. You know, some very large firms had attrition rates as low as 3%. Some had attrition rates of 74%, which means there's, you know, some poor recruiter somewhere pulling their hair out about having to replace right. that level of folks. So, you know, I think there has been, um, you know, attention and there have been efforts on this part by firms around things like compensation, diversity fellowships, mentoring, professional development, etc. The problem is, and it won't surprise you to hear me say this as a data geek, there's a dearth of data on the actual efficacy of the vast majority of these programs and efforts. So one of the things the foundation is doing is we're actually launching a new study. We're calling it the STAY study, and it is actually going to be designed to look at the factors that cause associates to want to stay at their organization from a work perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a career progression perspective, to see if we can identify what the factors are that really make a difference to associates, that really make some organizations more sticky than others. Because our hope is that that information will not only be useful to individual firms, but that then as a profession, we will be able to focus our efforts on things that are really effective. And we can say this is where the human and financial resources really need to focus because this is where we see it actually makes a difference. I just wanted to ask Fiona and just switch gears a little bit, which is really I guess talking about the legal pipeline, it, it touches on the point you made about, I was kidding when I jumped in and said, you know, they're starting to go back to elementary school to make an offer. It has numerous ramifications. One of them is, as you said, it, it misses talent. 
I mean, our model is obviously based at Legal Innovators on picking up the talent it misses. But also, it really puts even more of a premium then on only where you got the law school, because they're not really looking at your performance in law school. They're looking at where you went, which puts, again, another premium on where you went to undergrad, because that's a, so they're often connected, right? So how do we get the pipeline of people going to the law schools that big law firms are willing to look at? especially if they're going to stop looking at any kind of long-term performance during law school, how do we expand that pipeline and really have it be more successful, both in terms of ultimately resulting in a longer-term fit with the firm, but also to create a more diverse pipeline? You know, I, I think you've put your finger on, you know, something having been on both the employer and the school side that, you know, I've been mulling for many years now is that really the profession would do well to move away from outdated notions about what signifiers of future success are, right? Because it's a very narrow band of those that are really put into play, as you were just, you know, talking about, you know, the rank of the school that you're going to, your performance during one semester. It's very clear that law school grades, for example, aren't a fail safe or even an accurate predictor of future efficacy and practice, right? But they are something that is significantly relied on by many employers, not just law firms, but by many employers. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the fact that the best decisions get made when there's maximum information and transparency on both sides of the equation. So, you know, the more students understand about what practice is like in different organizations and different areas of practice, and what it actually takes to succeed in the long term in those. So that's transparency on the part of employers. And students have more time to discover their own areas of interest and where they may uh, best thrive. We would see a better alignment with employment outcomes and a little bit more stickiness, which is, I think, what we are all hoping for. I do have to say that one thing I think we cannot overlook as a profession, but we do in the recruiting world, is the professional and personal impact of the enormous amounts of educational debt that these folks are coming out of law school with, right? So our data in the alumni study show that for the most recent class 2018 that we uh, surveyed three years after graduation, so they've already been paying off their undergraduate and law school loans, the average educational debt is nearly $95,000, and it's even higher for graduates of color, nearly 123000 And what the data is very clear about is that that debt impacts the type of positions that people choose as well as impacting very significant personal decisions, you know, whether to become parents, whether to buy a home, whether to marry or be in a personal partnership with someone. So, you know, I think that as we think about the factors that would lead to better outcomes, we can't disregard the economic drivers for these students as well. No, it's very well said. It's amazing to me, actually, that the trend is working the other way, that they're going earlier and earlier into the period of time. I understand the talent war piece, which is we've got to get access to people sooner if we want to get the people we want. But it does feel as if it, it cuts directly against the information flow that you're talking about. We're going to be making poorer and poorer decisions along the way as a profession on both ends, both sides. You know, there's an enormous opportunity and human cost to everybody then, right? Opportunity for the organizations and human for the participants, right? Yeah. 
Well, uh, we've come to that magical time. So thank you. We really appreciate uh, the, the perspective and so much more to dig in and look forward to your upcoming survey at Survey and Surveys. We'll transition into pet peeves. I hope uh, as a guest, you get to be first. So I hope you've come up with one. If not, happy to uh, to engage John. I, he's probably uh, developed one by now. Uh, but this is just time for the, the, the audience that can get to see you as not the big executive, the president of the foundation, <laughs> the, the lawyer, and, and you know, some insight to you. But uh, what pet peeve do you have this week? So my pet peeve, and this is probably situationally influenced, um, but despite being a born and bred Bostonian who still lives here, my pet peeve is January in Boston. It's just grim. It's gray. It's cold. It's yucky. We're out of the holidays. Spring is a long time away. So if a month can be a pet peeve, that is my pet peeve. (laughs) You left out endless. I was going to say, right. Almost like the dog days of summer, but this sounds even even tougher, right? <laughs> Looking for that uh, that that rainbow or something there. Looking for that uh, first crocus. <laughs> yeah, I, I am sure that many members of uh, the audience can identify, especially since we have uh, both uh, clients in, in a number of schools, as you well know, uh, in Boston. But now, thank you for sharing that, Fiona. John, what's uh, what's troubling you today, young man? Well, this only comes up occasionally for me, but it's it, 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 it's outsized in its annoyance when it does. So it takes the pet peeve list, which is when you rent a car that has that automatic feature that jerks you back into your lane if you drifted half an inch from the center of your, of your I, I don't lane. think I've had that yet. That's awesome. Oh, my God. It's a scary experience. It is a very scary. You're not in the other lane. You're possibly slightly off center by maybe two inches in your lane and it takes over the steering and it shakes it back into (laughs) straight and it literally yanks the wheel from your hands and it's it's far worse to me than the consequences of being a little bit out of center in your lane so on my car i was able to disable that once but um but but uh (laughs) it's a feature that exists and i hate it i guess that would be jarring uh i have to look out for that next time i'm renting a car uh someplace okay so one is a little bit humorous but this is uh and john certainly frequently complain about the dc traffic but particularly cab drivers are my uh, pet peeve today so as people have come back to work, we have a lot more people on the roadways. And I think that cabs and, and maybe Ubers, I'm not, I Lyft, I don't want to leave anybody out, are not used to having other cars to deal with. So today, this guy violently cuts me off. He's like, I guess I'm moving too slow or something. And I'm like, first instinct, right, is one of these drivers like, oh, oh wait a minute. Like, hey, you know, I've lived in New York. Uh, I'm, I'm ready for this. Then I was like, okay, hold on. What the back part of the brain or wherever part of the brain slows you down says, I had a, uh, and John and I uh, laugh about this all, all the time, those progressive commercials. So in a three second point time, I became my parents. I said, <laughs> wait a minute, where's the big hurry? So I just slowed down to about 20 miles an hour. I said, go ahead, sir. <laughs> like, you know, like this is okay. I just want to live and kind of get to work. And what, you know, what's, what's got the world in such a hurry? So, uh, uh, 
Can I can I just point out, Brian, for full disclosure for the people who are here, for all the cab drivers in yeah. DC and Uber drivers who might feel slighted, Brian, uh, his formative years of driving were in California. That's, so that's I just think that that ought to it is, it that is, ought to go in the it equation. It is frighteningly aggressive, but I've I, I've I've drifted into the uh, Sunday driver kind of status. I was like, no, nope, no problem here. <laughs> you take that. You just go first. Fiona, I know John's going to close us out in here in a, in a second, but uh, just wanted to thank you for being with us today, for the wonderful insights and for, you know, those that don't know out in the audience, always being such a friend to Legal Innovators. You know, we greatly appreciate you and, and the relationship. I'm so excited to see all the great work you all are doing and that you're asking these tough questions. So may it move us all forward. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's cut, let's connect again on a future op, uh, podcast to see how, how we're all doing and what, how the profession is doing on these things. You don't want to see the statistics moving in the other direction. That's for sure. But thank you, Fiona. We really appreciate it. And I know our uh, audience is going to be extremely grateful and informed by this. Those of you who are listening, you can find the links to this and for the studies that we were discussing and check out the other great research being done by the NALP Foundation. You can find those on our website. Brian and I thank you all for listening to The Law in Black and White, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast, joining our family members, and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time and be safe.